If you've ever been around children or spent any time at all working with them, you know this to be true. Little kids will ask a million questions. You see, because they're little, everything's new to them. So they're curious, curious about everything, curious about everyone. And because they're curious, they don't hesitate to ask the questions. They want to know. But take that truth and flip it over. Isn't it also true that when you were little and you were growing up that you found yourself being asked a lot of questions too? And it wasn't a million different questions. It seemed like when you were little, you were asked the same six or seven questions over and over again, a million times. I mean, how many times did you hear this growing up? Did you brush your teeth? Did you do your homework? Have you finished your chores? Did you clean your room? Did you say thank you? What time did you get home last night? Now, as a kid, I didn't appreciate this, but I needed it. I needed my mom and dad to keep tabs on me. I needed them to keep asking those same questions over and over again. Because like a good shepherd looking out for the sheep, my parents realized how naive and, and gullible little kids can be, how easily we can go astray. So to keep me focused, to keep me on track, to help me learn how to become responsible, to help me develop some good habits in my life, I needed that accountability. I needed my parents to be constantly checking on me. And it worked. I mean, by the time I got to junior high, you could tell that all this training was beginning to have an effect because by that point in my life, I could anticipate some of the questions they were going to ask before they even asked them. I knew before I ever asked my mom, can I watch one of my shows on TV? She was first of all going to ask me, have you finished your homework? So before I ever asked permission to watch one of those shows, I did my homework first and I could see the smile on my mom's face. She's thinking to herself, hey, he's starting to get it. He's beginning to grow up. Well, because of all that training, when I became a parent, I did the same thing to my children. <laughs> I must have asked a million different times those same six or seven questions because I realized, hey, here's something so important. You can't let this slip. You can't let this slide. You've got to pay attention to this. But here's something I didn't do, or I didn't do it often enough. I wish I'd taken more time at the end of every day just to sit on the edge of the bed with my children and ask them a different set of questions. Questions that have to do with the heart. Questions like, what was the best part of your day? And now tell me, what was the worst part of your day? Are you worried about anything? Did anybody hurt your feelings today? Are you mad at anybody? Did somebody break a promise to you? And especially that last question about breaking the promises, because sometimes I was the guilty party. I promised to be at the game, I promised to be at the concert, and then I didn't follow through, and then I just forgot about it, but they didn't forget. And I needed to apologize. I needed to make things right because it's not right for a little child to go to bed with that kind of disappointment weighing on their heart. You see, I think it's really important to ask these kind of questions, questions that have to do with the heart, because little kids are not only great at asking questions, little kids are good at hiding things too, not sharing what they're feeling on the inside because they're not sure if it's safe to share those feelings. So too many times, too many boys and girls go to bed at night with worries and fears that they shouldn't carry in their hearts. Too many times, too many boys and girls go to bed at night with wounds and disappointments. They're just too big for them to handle, too big for them to process and try to figure out on their own. And they need somebody older. They need somebody wiser, somebody who's willing to take the time to just gently probe and ask some questions and draw that stuff out of their hearts and say, listen, you shouldn't be dealing with this by yourself. Let me help you. Let me help you solve this. Let me help you carry that burden. Now, here's why I mention all this. Isn't that exactly what our Heavenly Father's trying to do with us? 
when every day, every day, he invites us to pray. Every day he says, cast all your anxiety on me. Don't keep that stuff to yourself. Please bring it to me. Every day he says, don't be anxious about anything. Anytime you worry, no matter what you're worrying about, turn to me, talk to me, pray. Tell me about that worry so I can help you with it. Here's another way to think about this very same thing. Have you ever noticed as you're reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, as you're reading about the life of Jesus, have you ever noticed how many times you hear him asking questions? 307 times. (laughs) That's a lot. 307 times you see Jesus taking the initiative. 307 times you see Jesus trying to engage others and trying to engage them by asking a question. What are you looking for? Do you love me? Where's your faith? Now, here's what I find fascinating. When I ask questions, it's because I need to know. I'm trying to discover something. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm puzzled about something. Here's something that doesn't make any sense to me, and I need somebody to fill in the blanks. I'm ignorant. I'm lacking information. So I ask questions because I need some answers. But Jesus didn't need that. He's God. He knows everything. He doesn't need to ask questions because he already has all the answers. So why is he asking questions? And why does he keep asking so many questions? Because asking questions is one of the best ways to get that other person involved in the conversation. It's one of the best ways to get them to connect with you. See, if you just stand there and tell me something, you just stand there and you preach at me, I don't have to make any response. I can just stand and listen or pretend to listen. But when you ask me a question, you put the ball in my court. Now it's up to me to make some kind of reply. By asking that question, not only are you connecting with me, but by asking that question, now you're inviting me to make a connection with you. You're drawing me into the relationship. Let me give you an example of how this works. Consider what Jesus did the last part of Luke chapter 18. That day, here's Jesus. He's coming into the city of Jericho, and there's a man sitting by the side of the road. He's blind. His name is Bartimaeus. And when he realizes that it's Jesus who is passing by, he cries out to Jesus for help. He prays. But before Jesus answers the prayer, he stops and talks to him. He asks him a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, if I'm Bartimaeus, I'm thinking, well, duh, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, anybody passing by can see I'm blind. I want to be able to see too. So Jesus heals him. But couldn't Jesus have healed him without asking the question? I mean, Jesus knew what he needed before he stopped to talk to the man, and everybody else standing in the crowd that day could see what he needed. Why ask the question? Well, that's similar to the question that we often wrestle with. Why do I need to pray? God already knows what I need before I ask him, so why do I even have to ask for the blessing? God, just go ahead and meet the need. Well, here's the answer to that question, Luke 18. Think about it. Jesus that day, he could have just walked right on by without saying a word and restored his sight. And boy, Bartimaeus would have been happy. I can see. But if Jesus had healed that way, that would have meant Bartimaeus had never met Jesus. He never would have had any kind of conversation with him. He never would have had any kind of connection with him. And Jesus wanted more. Jesus wanted to do more than just hand out a miracle. Jesus wanted to build and develop a friendship with this man. So he stops and he talks and he asks questions. So that when Bartimaeus is finally able to see, now with those new eyes, he can see Jesus. And now he can be drawn into a new relationship with him. That's why we pray. If you're praying just so you can get something, you have missed the point. No, the reason why we pray is so we can draw near to the Lord. And now he can have an opportunity to draw near to us. And as a result of becoming close, now we can enjoy a much stronger and a much greater friendship. 
Now, I think that's the truth that we see illustrated in this scripture we're going to study today, Acts chapter 4. You know, all the way through the book of Acts, you read about how the early Christians devoted themselves to prayer. But here's a scripture where we get a chance to hear them pray. We get a chance to hear what they actually said when they talked to the Lord. And as I listen to them, I learn how to pray too. Look at this with me. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. On the release, we're talking about Peter and John. They've been in jail, and then they had to stand trial. And they're in the trial. They're warned and threatened. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. And Peter and John, along with everybody else in church, knows <laughs> that's something we can't do. We've got to keep preaching about him. So they begin to realize this, this persecution they're now experiencing is probably going to continue, and it's probably going to get worse. So here they are in the middle of this giant controversy where life's going to become very difficult for them, and the question becomes, how do they handle the pressure? Well, notice, what's the first thing Peter and John do? I mean, after being in jail, after being on trial, when they're finally released, what's the first thing they do? They go to church. They don't run to the bar to drown their sorrows with a bunch of beer. They don't run to the law offices of Bennett and Berkmeyer so they can file a complaint. Hey, we've been falsely accused, and we're going to make you pay for this because we're going to file a suit against you. No! It says on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, meaning other Christians. They went back to their church family. Peter and John need some encouragement and support. But in order to receive that encouragement, that means what? they got to open their hearts. they got to be, be willing to share. So that's exactly what they did. They reported all. I mean, every detail. I mean, they gave their fellow believers a blow-by-blow -blow description. Here's what happened that night while we were in jail. And then here's what happened when we stood trial. Here's what they said to us. Here's what we said to them. They reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. See, Peter and John have been through some really ugly stuff. They've been in this hostile environment where they've been under attack by the highest court in the land, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the 70 most powerful men in all the nation of Israel, men who have the power and authority to do some real harm. That's scary stuff. But they don't keep that scary stuff. They don't carry that around in their hearts. No, Peter and John have found a group, a group of people to whom they can clean out their hearts. Here's a group of people who, a group of Christians who are really devoted to fellowship. I mean, they're really devoted to sharing with each other. Come on, Peter and John. Let's work on this together. Talk to us. Tell us everything that happened. So together as a group, we can process this. So together as a group, we can figure out, okay, what does this mean? And how do we move forward from here? And because they take the time to do that, now they put themselves in a position where they are ready to pray. Okay, every one of us is aware. Here's our challenge. Here's the problem we are now facing. Now let's take that problem and let's lay it out before the Lord. So together, verse 24, they begin to pray. They begin to lift their voices to the Lord. Verses 24 to 40, you see their prayer. And here's one of the things I want you to notice about this prayer. It's saturated with Scripture. Verse 24, instead of using their own words, they borrow the words of Psalm 146. Verses 25 and 26, again, instead of using their own words, they borrow the words of Psalm 2. In fact, all the way through this prayer, you see him following the example of King Hezekiah and the way he prayed way back there in Isaiah chapter 37. Do you begin to get the lesson? Sometimes when you pray, it's okay to use a script, to have something that's already prepared in advance. You don't have to be original and creative when you pray. You can borrow the words of somebody else and let that be your prayer too and, and know that that prayer is okay, especially when those prayers come right out of the Bible. In other words, you can borrow, you can take a prayer that somebody else has prayed and let that become your prayer as well. And know that your prayer to the Lord is as real and as genuine as somebody who just spontaneously stands up and says, okay, Lord, I'm just going to improvise, kind of talk off the top of my head. Randomly, as thoughts come to my mind, I'll tell you what I think. Both prayers, both kind of prayers can be just as real and genuine. Think about it. Every Sunday morning when we sing our praises to the Lord, do we sing the songs we wrote and composed? 
No, every Sunday morning we're borrowing the music and the lyrics that somebody else created. And we're using their songs to express our own love and devotion to the Lord. Are we being hypocritical when we do that? I don't think so. Or think of it like this. Say the day before your anniversary, you sit down to write a letter to your wife. You want this to be something heartfelt. So you take time to just clarify your thoughts and, and put it all down on paper. And, 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 and you want to be really clear in communicating the love that you have for her. Is this letter to your wife? Is it going to be less real, less meaningful than if you waited till the day of the anniversary and just kind of stood up and spur of the moment say, okay, I'm just going to speak off the cuff and tell you how much I love you? More than likely, she's going to appreciate that letter so much more because of all the time and thought you put into it. That's what we have here, these early Christians, even the apostles. They did not hesitate to use the prayers that other people have prayed to express their own concerns to the Lord. Lord, these words say exactly what I'm feeling right now. I'm going to use these words too. So look at the prayer, verse 24. First of all, it tells us how they prayed. And then he tells us what they prayed. He says, when they heard this, verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, there's a lot of different ways in which they might have done this. Ben was an example of this this morning. You know, all the examples we have back in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy chapter 27, you had 12 different Levites, and they each need to speak, and they each take a turn, and they get up and they speak, and each one speaks briefly. And after each one speaks, the rest of the nation of Israel responds, Amen. That's exactly the way I feel, too. And maybe that's what happened here. Peter gets up. He's kind of the spokesman for the group. He gets up and he prays. But, you know, after a certain amount of time, he pauses, and the rest of the church says, Amen. Boy, that's exactly what we wanted to say to God, too. Or maybe it happened like this, verse 24. Peter gets up, and he begins to recite the 146th Psalm. And after each line, he just pauses so the rest of the church can repeat those words, too. See, they, 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 they didn't have their own individual Bibles like we do today. They only had a few scrolls. They were so expensive. Maybe there was one scroll in the synagogue, and then maybe a few rich people in and around town had a, a scroll too. But most people didn't have access to the Scripture. So how did they learn the Word? Because every Sabbath they were there in the synagogue. They heard the Word read to them. They heard the Word taught to them. And then through the years they memorized it. So here's Peter, and he's saying, you know, I'm thinking of a psalm here. It really fits the situation we're in right now. They were in a similar situation. This really fits us. And he stands up and he begins to recite the 146th psalm. And maybe I'm in the, in the, with the church that day, and I'm thinking, you know, that's one psalm I haven't memorized yet. But so I can be a part of the prayer. Peter begins to quote the psalm, but he stops after the first line, and we get to repeat the words after him. So now I can pray the prayer too. And then verses 25 and 26, John gets up and he says, I think of another psalm that really fits the situation. It's Psalm 2. And he begins to recite line by line, and the congregation repeats. Or, because they're quoting so much from the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, it's 150 Psalms. 100, it's our prayer book. 150 different Psalms, Psalms for every possible occasion in life. But every one of those prayers was put to music. So maybe what happens is, uh, verse 24, Peter starts up, and he, uh, he stands up, and he just starts singing a song. And everybody's saying, hey, I've heard that song a lot. We sing it all the time in the synagogue. And they start singing it too. But they're not just singing. They're thinking about the words. They're actually singing their prayer to God. And verses 25 and 26, John gets up and he starts singing another song. Comes right out of Psalm 2. And again, the rest of the church joins in. You see, there's all different kinds of ways they could have prayed that prayer. But here's what's most important. Notice what they said in their prayers. Last part of verse 24. Sovereign Lord. Meaning you're in charge. You made the heavens and everything in them. You made the earth and everything on it. You made the sea and everything in it. God, it all belongs to you. 
which means at any time, in any part of this universe, you are free to do whatever you desire. You are in control. I always remember this night, years and years ago, I was young in the ministry. I was making a hospital call with an older preacher. It was the middle of the night. We're going to the emergency room. It's a critical situation, and he could tell I was really nervous. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to be? What are we going to say? What are we going to do? How are we going to be able to help? And so on our way to the hospital, he turns to me and says, David, relax. God's already there. Which means when we step into that room tonight, don't pray, Lord, be with us. No, God's already there. When we step into that room tonight, pray, God, it's good to know that we're not alone. It's good to know we don't have to deal with this by ourselves. It's so good to know you're here. And because you're here, that means we can lean on you. We can trust you to help us. Wow, the sense of confidence that that brought me. I think that's what these early Christians are doing here, verse 24, thinking about the sovereignty of God. They're, they're reminding themselves, you don't just find the presence of God when you're sitting here in a church building. No, God's active everywhere, in the heavens, on the earth, in the sea, which means you can find him when you go to the bank. You can find him when you go to the hospital. You can even find him down at the state capitol. You can find God when you go to work at the factory. You can find God when you go to buy something at the store. You can find God at the local high school gym when you go to watch a high school basketball game. You can find God even in those countries where the Buddhists or the Hindus or the Muslims seem to be in majority. And you wonder if there's anybody here who knows anything at all about Jesus. But know this, long before you ever arrived on the scene, he's already there. He's already been there and working in advance. So once you show up, you've got to open your eyes and pray, God, open my heart and help me to see what you've already been doing. And now, God, show me. Show me how to join you in that effort. Show me how I can be a part of that story, too. See, that's what these early Christians are doing here. They're reminding themselves God is active in every part of his world. So they just take time to think about how wise he is, how good he is, how big he is. And that's the God who's helping us right here, right now. Now, they continue the same theme in verse 25 as they begin to quote from Psalm 2. In verses 25 and 26, they quote a portion of that psalm. And then in verses 27 and 28, they take time to think about it and how it applies to them. Hey, these words weren't just written for King David and the people back in the days of the Old Testament. It has application to us, too. The God who helped them is the same God who's going to help us. So after taking all this time just to focus upon God, finally, you get down to verse 29, and at last they begin to make their request. It's God first, and then we'll, we realize the one who's going to be helping us out, and then we talk about the problem. Verse 29, it says, Lord, you know we're under attack. We're being persecuted. We're being threatened. Consider their threats, and we'll trust you to do what is best. And in the meantime, here's what we want you to do for us. Enable us. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, God, we know this persecution may continue, and that may be part of your will, part of your plan. And if that's so, we know you've got a reason for this. So, God, if you're not going to take the trouble away, then do this for us. In the midst of this trouble, it shows how to magnify Jesus. Shows how to stand strong for him. And then in verse 30, they continue. It says, stretch out your hand. Those words come right out of the book of Exodus. See, again, they're using scripture as they pray. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So that God our enemies so that they can begin to see what we've already seen. There's no one like Jesus. And maybe, Lord, maybe even our enemies will be converted too. And then verse 31, God answers the prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. It's almost like God reaches down and just gives this whole church a great big hug and says, I heard you. I'm here. I'm going to take care of you. 
And so they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Let me finish with this. One night at a church in Tennessee, there was this elderly lady, a survivor of the Holocaust, who stood up to give her testimony. Her name was Ellie. I wasn't there that night, but I heard this secondhand. She was a Jew, and way back in World War II, way back in the 1940s, she, when she was just a teenager, she had been captured and sent to a prison camp. And what she experienced in that camp was just awful. I mean, after months and months of a, all kinds of abuse and malnutrition, Ellie thought to herself, I, I can't take this anymore. I've got to get out of here. I've got to find a way to escape. So over the next couple of weeks, she came up with a plan, and one night she decided to give it a try. She snuck out of the building. She made it all the way across the yard without being noticed and had only one more hurdle to cross, this large barbed wire fence. She was halfway up the fence when one of the guards spotted her, pointed the gun, said, Stop! Drop to the ground! And she did so. Her knees and legs bleeding badly, Ellie started to cry. She thought, My one chance to escape, that's gone. It's vanished. It's over. That's when something surprising happened. She heard the guard say, Ellie, is that you? I can't believe this. Is this possible? Is that you, Ellie? And Ellie looked up, and immediately she recognized a young man named Rolf, R-O-L-F, Rolf. They went to school together. In fact, back in middle school, they'd been the very best of friends. But now, because of this war, they found themselves on opposite sides. And Ellie said, go ahead, Rolf, just shoot me. I can't take this anymore. I've lost all hope, but just... Just get it over with right here, right now. Just let me die. I, I've got no reason to live. Roth put the gun down. He came over. He knelt next to Ellie, and he whispered to her, that, that's not right, Ellie. You're wrong. You're just so wrong. Listen, Ellie, you've got every reason to live if you know who to live for. So listen to me, Ellie. I, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you escape. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to stand guard while you climb over that fence. But you've got to promise me something first. And L.A. can't believe what she's hearing. She's thinking, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll promise anything. He said, you've got to promise me that once you get to that other side and you finally become free, that you're going to ask this question, and you're going to keep asking this question until you find somebody who can give you an answer. Why does Jesus make life worth living? Promise me, L.A. Just, you're going to keep asking that question until you find somebody who can give you an answer, because trust me, L.A., Jesus is the only one who makes life worth living. Well, Ellie's thinking to herself, hey, I'll say anything to get out of this miserable place. So she said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So he stood guard. She climbed the fence. She got to the other side. She began to run. She got about 200 yards to the other side when she heard shots. And she thought, did he change his mind? Is he firing at me? And if so, why? I mean, if, if he's firing at me, why are the bullets all missing? So she stopped and turned and looked around and saw it wasn't Roth. It was the other prison guards. They saw what he'd done, how he'd let her go, and they killed him on the spot. So now Ellie's running faster than ever before, and the whole time she's running, she's realizing he died just so I could have a chance to know Jesus. Who is this Jesus that he was talking about? I've never heard of him before. Wow, this Jesus must be somebody really special if he was willing to make that sacrifice for me. So after Ellie finally got free, she spent the next year and a half, and she kept asking that question. She's really curious now. She kept asking that question until one day she met somebody who'd given an answer. And 40 years later, there she was, standing in church there in Tennessee, saying, I am a Christian tonight because there was a young man named Roth who loved Jesus so much. He made the ultimate sacrifice for me. He literally laid down his life so I could have a chance to know him.
I wonder if maybe the reason why God didn't lift the persecution, maybe the, one, the reason why he didn't take away the trouble, maybe the reason why he answered the prayer the way he did, instead of taking the trouble away, he gave the Christians boldness in the midst of that trouble. I wonder if the reason why God did that was so that everybody in the city of Jerusalem could see, hey, this Jesus you keep talking about, even though it costs you all kinds of pain, hardship, and persecution, this Jesus you keep talking about, he must be somebody special. If you're willing to suffer all of this, just so I can have a chance to hear about him. Do you love Jesus? And do you love him so much you can't stop talking about him? Do you love him so much that everybody around you can see he is my reason for living? He is the one who makes life worthwhile for me. Let's pray.